Hello, welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I am your host, and this is episode 38 of Doc Tell Me More. And like I say every episode, whether this is your first time or your 38th time listening to Doc Tell Me More, I truly appreciate you taking your time out of the day, night, morning, wherever, to listen to my podcast. A couple couple housekeeping things I'm going to talk about here at the beginning, so if you could just kind of bear with me, I'd appreciate it. Um, I feel like I have, or I am going to have a number of new listeners uh, for this episode who might have never listened to Doc Tell Me More before. And part of that is because, uh, some of you might know, I, um, while I I have been on Twitter, (laughs) um, I am now starting to post things on Mastodon. And so if you haven't found me yet on Mastodon, it's at Doc Tell Me More. Search me and you'll find me. But uh, I'm considering kind of moving my content there to Mastodon uh, for a couple reasons. One, I just kind of like the interface a little bit better there. Um, Those of you that have picked me up or followed me from Twitter, I I still right now have my Twitter at Doc Tell Me More. Um, Excuse me. But I'm considering going over to Mastodon. So either way... At Doc Tell Me More on Mastodon or Twitter, uh, um, but probably in the future, most of my updates are going to be on Mastodon. So, if you found me for the first time, whether because of Mastodon or or somewhere else, uh, Doc Tell Me More is my podcast where um, I watch a ton of documentaries, and the premise is pretty simple on this podcast. I, after a documentary, I do some research and I take. Uh, I like to dive into the content a little bit deeper to look at what did the documentary leave out or what are some things the documentary talked about but just couldn't quite get to. And really the point of this podcast is just to learn something more, learn something new. And so my hope from this podcast is that you learn something, whether you are familiar with this topic or whether um, it is or whether you know nothing about the topic. And um, that's my hope. Uh, this is a, a podcast where it's just really a big passion project for me. I don't make any money off of it. Although I'm more than willing though, if someone wants to pay me a lot of money to continue, I would, I would take your money. But, um, in all seriousness, I, I just hope you can learn something from this podcast. <clears throat> so that was my first thing I want to talk about. Uh, but the second thing I want to talk about before I get into this week's episode is those of you that might have been listening to my episodes in this podcast for a long time, might have realized that yesterday, um, which would have been November 20th, it looks like five episodes might have dropped yesterday. And you might be wondering why or what happened there. So about a year, year and a half ago, I did um, a series on the Civil War, the Ken Burns Civil War, and I had it published for a while, and I unpublished it at one point. And part of the reason was I just really wasn't happy with how it went. Um, I thought I could have done a better job about, uh, with those episodes. And so I took those off and actually went on hiatus for a little bit with this podcast before I, I came back. And I just kind of decided that I wanted to republish those episodes. And um, so I just kind of published those last night for the second time. And they all just kind of popped in there. It looks like they're new episodes, but they're really just the republished versions of the Ken Burns Civil War series that I did a year and a half ago. And so I didn't just magically record five episodes in the last week. I don't have that much time, but those are republished for you to listen to. And really all my episodes of Doc Tell Me More, all um, of them are still available to listen to the series on baseball, Civil War, The Last Dance, my shorter ones on the USFL, uh, University of Miami, and then Ken Burns' The War. So if you haven't listened to any of those, feel free to go back and, and listen to those. Um, but that's probably not why you, you've clicked on this episode. You want to uh, learn more about Ken Burns' The War, which is the series that we have been discussing. So kind of without further ado, let's transition um, to Ken Burns' uh, Civil War, not Civil War, World War II. Ken Burns the War, our next part here. So let's go ahead and transition into that content. So at, at this point 
in the war, um, we're getting towards late 1944-1945 here in World War II. And so we're getting towards the end. At least we know right now we're getting to the end of the war. And the Allies and uh, we're getting really confident, obviously, that the war is going to come to an end sometime. Um, they just don't know when. And it could be a year, it could be two, it could be three. But the tide has obviously really turned in the Allies' favor. It's just a question of when. And so this episode was just kind of interesting because it didn't really have that much to it. It was a two-hour episode on uh, Ken Burns' The War. But there was really only what I gleaned two things out of it that um, I found really... The two major topics that I really talked about in this two-hour episode, and so we have had we have had uh, episodes where they've talked about five, six, seven, eight different things, and I couldn't really figure out uh, what to talk about. This episode it was kind of pretty straightforward, and so we're really only going to talk about the two battles that this episode talked about, and we're actually going to just add a third topic on quickly at the end of this episode, which was something that they didn't talk about but I thought it was interesting. But th these two battles that we're going to talk about today, one on the European theater and one in the Pacific theater, were kind of two battles that really hastened uh, the end of the war and, and took the war from maybe lasting another two years, um, from, 1940, from December 1944 to within a year, um, the war being over. And so the first battle that we're going to talk about is the Battle of the Bulge, which really took the uh, most of the time uh, of this episode on Ken Burns' War. A lot of it was dedicated to the Battle of the Bulge, which makes sense because uh, it was a highly important battle. But they did leave out some important parts of the battle that were, were uh, pertinent to the U.S. winning this battle. Um... And also kind of left out a lot of the different strategy that went into actually winning this battle. So as I talk about the Battle of the Bulletin, I'm kind of going to kind of dive into the details of this battle that was left out. And so as we get to December 1944 here in the European theater, the Allies had advanced towards Germany much quicker than they expected. And this actually ended up causing a number of issues. Um, you had exhausted troops. Uh, you had depleted supplies and really thin supply lines. And so because of this, General Eisenhower decided to use the Ardennes Forest, which is on the German border, as a rest area for his troops. And they also uh, defended this area really lightly because of the terrain. The Ardennes Forest is a, a, just a really, again, densely dense um, you know, area with a lot of woods, with rough roads. And so it was not an area that they would expect an attack to come to. And so they pretty much put troops in the Ardennes Forest to rest um, from the battles they'd just been in or to train new troops. And it was such a light atmosphere, they actually brought in celebrities, Hollywood celebrities in, to entertain the troops. So really at this point, there's a lot of complacency um, kind of at this part of the front in the European theater. Um, the winter was was in full gear too, and so because of the weather, uh, the U.S. was not expecting a German attack at all. And in some areas, there's actually only one person every 300 feet, so it's a very thin line. Uh, the Allies assume the Germans are unable to have any major offensive operations, and this kind of left them vulnerable to an attack. Now, the German situation was really poor. I mean, obviously. We've kind of talked about in the previous episodes on the, the different battles that they'd gotten um, steadily pushed back towards Europe since Normandy in June. And we talked about the Battle of Aachen in the last episode, which is the first German city that was captured by the Allies. So you had the Allies coming in from the West, or at least the Western Allies of you know, British, the, Britain, France, the U.S., and on the east, you had the Soviets closing in. Uh, most of uh, 
France, Belgium, Luxembourg has been liberated uh, as well. But despite all this, Hitler felt that he could mount one more offensive against the Allies in the West in the hopes of improving their negotiating position. That if he could have one big offensive, he could break through the lines and maybe even uh, break through and separate the British and the Americans to negotiate a, a better peace. Because if you remember, the Allies have told the Germans that uh, all they... In order to surrender, it has to be an unconditional surrender. So Hitler was hoping that maybe a, one giant victory in Europe and, and a battle could maybe get better terms for Germany. So his plan was that he would attack the center of the Allied lines through the Ardennes, split them in two, and then um, capture Antwerp, which is a really important port that the Allies had just captured, and then push the Allies to the sea which is actually very similar to his attack on France in 1940. Um, Antwerp would give them a major supply port, it would give them fuel, and then if this was successful, he could then focus his attention on the Eastern Front against the Soviets. Now, his generals disagreed with this plan, because they just expected it to fail. But they also understood that just fighting on the defensive wouldn't work either. I mean, eventually, if they just stayed on the defensive in Germany, they'd be conquered. So they presented an alternative plan to him, which he turned down. Um, and, and so Hitler decided to, to kind of go on with his attack. And at this time as well, he was actually pretty drugged up. Um, yeah, with, uh, in, in be, he was becoming really paranoid with drug use. There was a huge physical and mental strain on him. People said that even though he was 55, he looked like he was in his 80s. So, uh, even though this was a risky plan, a plan his generals felt would fail, he decided to go through with it. Um, and so, and on top of that, his generals were scared of being disloyal to him after the July 20 plot, the plot we talked about last episode where he uh, had an attempt on his life. And so they decided to let the offensive go on. Now, in order for the attack to be successful, it needed a few things. Number one, it needed to be a complete surprise. And number two, it needed, they needed to move rapidly. It had to occur in poor, poor weather. That was a big thing for this, his offensive, the Ardennes offensive, as it became called, to succeed. Because if it was cloudy, then it would limit the Allies' Allied air superiority. And then they also needed to capture Allied supplies for fuel. So if any of those things didn't happen... If it wasn't a surprise, if they moved too slowly, if there was good weather, or they didn't couldn't capture fuel, it wouldn't work. And that was why the generals really were against it, because it was just so risky. So the Germans um, had four armies at their disposal, and it included many conscripted soldiers, uh, anywhere from 16 to 60. There was only... At the same time, on the other end with the United States, there was only four infantry in the Ardennes on an 80-mile front. Like I said, there was like one person every 300 feet in some spots. Now, on top of that, this was like one of the worst winters that people could remember. The average maximum temperature, not the average temperature, the average maximum ten temperature was zero degrees at this time. And during this battle, actually, it was so cold, many people froze to death or lost hands feet, or toes. So it's kind of with this, um, this background here, this war situation that Germany decides to attack through the Ardennes, mass their infantry, mass their soldiers, and just go straight through the Ardennes and try to attack and take Antwerp. And so the battle begins on December 16, 1944. They started it with a military bombardment across the Allied front. And the Germans achieved total tactical surprise. Okay? Um, so that worked. The Americans were caught completely off guard. But fierce resistance actually slowed the Germans down. And they were not able to move as fast as they wanted. So that was one of the things that ended up not working. They didn't get to go as fast as they wanted. Um, now, it took actually 10 hours for the American high commanders to hear about the attack. 
Omar Bradley the, um, was in Paris actually meeting with Eisenhower. And initially, Bradley thinks it is just a minor attack, but Eisenhower realizes it's probably a major offensive because the Germans wouldn't waste troops on a minor attack. So then they sc they're scrambling to try to push back this attack. And this attack really actually happened in three different attacks. And this was not mentioned really in the documentary. You had a northern attack, you had a central attack, and then you had a southern attack. And so the northern attack, um, the goal was Antwerp. I talked about that. And the goal was to capture Antwerp by the fourth day. So by the fourth day, they were hoping to capture Antwerp. Now this attack, the northern attack, would eventually be known as the Battle of Elsenborn Ridge. Now Elsenborn Ridge, which is about 2,000 feet high, it was just east of Elsenborn, Belgium. Now the Germans needed to seize this ridge in order to control the roads and supply lines so they could march to Antwerp. So if they could not capture this ridge, uh, they wouldn't capture Antwerp, which and they couldn't capture Antwerp, then this whole attack would fail. So because of the importance of the attack, this attack had the best and most elite troops, and they had priority with supplies. You had the 6th Panzer Army, and they had 4 Panzer Divisions and 5 Infantry Divisions, they're led by Joachim Piper. Now, they only had fuel for about 90 to 100 miles, which wasn't enough to reach Antwerp. So they had to capture fuel. It's kind of a gutsy attack. Hey, you need to go capture a city, which you don't have enough fuel for. Anyways, Hitler did it. Um, now, you had two divisions of the U.S. Army placed to um, hold Elsenborn Ridge. You had the 99th and the 2nd Divisions. Now, the 99th was placed, actually, in the Ardennes because they thought they would not see a battle. So you had a division here that was completely not ready for this attack. Now, because of the fierce resistance though, Piper had to be rerouted. Um, the resistance was tough enough that there was one 18-man platoon from the 99th Division that held up 500 German paratroopers for 20 hours, and they caused 92 casualties before being captured. Um, now, every member of that platoon ended up being decorated, and so it ended up becoming the most highly decorated platoon of World War II. And this was kind of significant because the 99th Division actually hadn't fired weapons in combat before this attack. So they acquitted themselves really well. Now, north of the ridge was a town, was a town which the Germans tried to take. They were repulsed. Um, they attempted a nighttime drop of paratroopers near Malmody. Um, but that was a failure due to the inexperience and bad weather. So on December 17th, the Germans were able to overrun the forward positions of the Americans. But um, the 99th and 2nd ended up still holding them back due to their strong defensive positions. Um, so two days into this battle, the Americans still controlled the ridge in two of the major roads. So again, by day four, they wanted to be in Antwerp, but by day two, they still haven't taken Elsenborn Ridge. Now, this leads us to December 17th. Um, and I talked about Malmody. Now, on December 17th, there were 150 American soldiers that were captured near Malmody. And instead of taking them as POWs because it would slow them down, they were ended up getting shot and killed. So 84 of them were killed um, instead of being taken as POWs, which is a war crime. Now, because of this, this was called the Malmody Massacre. This massacre spread throughout the Americans' ranks. And so then throughout the rest of this battle, a lot of American soldiers were actually reluctant to take German prisoners because of that. And on January 1st, actually 80 German POWs were killed by Americans. And so, um, this was happening during the Battle of the Bulge as well, um, unfortunately. So on December 19th now, the Germans tried to take the ridge with a frontal attack, which didn't work. It was repulsed with numerous losses. And the Germans would continue to try to break the American lines over the next few days, but every attack was pushed back. Finally, on December 24th, Piper ran out of fuel he just abandoned his vehicles, set them on fire, and retreated to go back to Germany. 
only 700 of his 4,800 men returned to the German lines. Um, and then as the skies cleared up in December, this, uh, and, um, this allowed the um, Allied air superior, superiority to then attack the Germans from the air, and that also contributed to their defeat. So the northern attack ended up failing. Okay, they got to Elsenborn Ridge, and they could not take the ridge. Piper has to walk back on him um, with no tanks to get back to Germany. So Elsenborn Ridge was a, was a really important uh, part of the Battle of the Bulge. Um, the Germans had superior armor and numbers, but they couldn't break through the great defensive positions. And this was actually the only sector of the Battle of the Bulge where the Germans did not advance, this northern part. Ironically, though, um, this part of the Battle of the Bulge isn't as publicly remembered. There's other parts of this battle, we're going to talk about Bastogne later on, that is most remembered from the Battle of the Bulge. But Elzebon Ridge is actually considered by some historians as the decisive moment of the Ardennes campaign of the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans had advanced rapidly through the Ardennes in 1940, but they could not repeat that in 1944. And I, they didn't talk about Elsenborn Ridge in the documentary, actually, which was too bad because this was really important. Um, there was 5,000 U.S. casualties at this part of the attack. There's about 30,000 casualties in the Germans. The 99th was outnumbered 5 to 1, but they inflicted 18 to 1 casualties at this part of the battle. Six soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor, three um, after their death. So the northern attack failed. That leads us to the second attack, the central attack, which was the goal was Brussels, which is just south of Antwerp. The central attack was done by the 5th Panzer Division, which was not as well equipped as the 6th Panzer Division, but they had strong leadership, and they went against the 28th and the 106th. And the central attack is known for the Battle of St. Vith. And the town of St. Vith was a critical junction that the Germans hoped to capture by December 17th. Now, their initial bombardment did not really affect St. Vith, but the attack did take the Americans by surprise, and they were eventually surrounded, and the town was evacuated on December 21st. And then some U.S. troops were then able to retreat into defensive positions, it helps to slow the German advance as they retreated back to the next town. There were 7,000 soldiers though that were forced to surrender, which was the biggest defeat by the U.S. in the European theater. However, despite this setback, the Germans had hoped to take St. Vith by the 17th, but they weren't able to take it until the 21st. And the extra four days it took to take the town damaged the ability of the German offensive and the Ardennes to succeed. Again, remember that one of the key important factors of the Battle of the Bulge or the Ardennes Offensive to succeed was it had to advance rapidly. And we've already seen in the north they couldn't advance. In the central it took longer than they, want, than they hoped. So the central attack was more successful. But again, by December 24th they were, they were still stopped short of the Meuse River. Now, one kind of interesting part of the central attack was that there was Germans who disguised themselves actually as American soldiers with American accents and uniforms, and they actually infiltrated the ranks um, and convinced other Americans that they were Americans. They caused problems with logistics, such as taking bridges, cutting communications, and turning road signs around. They even sent American soldiers in the wrong direction. So in order to combat these Germans, which put a lot of panic in the American, uh, in, in, in the, uh, amongst the troops, there's a lot of panic amongst the troops that they didn't know who was a German or who was an American. So to combat that, they had more checkpoints and they made soldier answer questions that only Americans would supposedly know, like Mickey Mouse, certain baseball scores, or even U.S. capitals to confirm they were American. This became a problem, though, when American soldiers didn't know some of the capitals. Um, General Omar Bradley was actually detained when he gave Springfield as the correct capital of Illinois, but a soldier thought it was Chicago. Eventually, to solve this problem, they brought in black soldiers, um, because obviously the Germans didn't have 
black soldiers. Um, so that was an easy way to defeat the Germans being disguised. Um, so yeah, it wasn't necessarily a huge deciding factor in the battle, but it was a part of the battle that really scared a lot of the American planners. So let's, let's talk about the last attack here of the Ardennes offensive, and that is the, the southern attack. And the goal of this attack was just to protect the flanks. On the southern part, the Germans were able to make steady progress, taking towns and strongholds, but again, the resistance of the Americans slowed them down significantly, which delayed their timetable. Um, and when, when Eisenhower realized that this was a major offensive that I talked about earlier, he ended up sending 250,000 soldiers in re as reinforcements, and that continued to help um, slow the Germans down. Now, by December 19th, the Germans had reached Bastogne and cut it off by the 20th. Now, Bastogne was chosen as the best place of resistance for the Allies um, and ended up being Hitler's um, most important objective if they couldn't take Antwerp. And the reason for that um, is because there are seven roads in the Ardennes that converged in Bastogne. So the Germans needed to take it. So if the Germans, if the Americans could hold on to it, the German attack here would fail. And really when people think about the Battle of the Bulge, the Siege of Bastogne is the, what the Battle of the Bulge is most famous for. And partly because it got the most coverage at the time. And this is what a lot of the documentary was spent on um, when talking about this battle. So Bastogne was protected by the 101st Airborne, which had served at Normandy. Uh, it was the main U.S. force holding Bastogne and consisted of 11,000 men. Like I said, Bastogne was surrounded by the Germans, and the U.S. was outnumbered 5 to 1. And on top of that, they um, uh, didn't have enough gear, didn't have enough food. Um, they didn't have cold weather gear as well. And so it was just a, a really tough you know, situation for the Americans. Um, uh, and they could not be resupplied for a while because the, the weather was cloudy. So really, what it took to hold Bastogne, it was just determination. They didn't have the supplies, they were outmanned, but they knew they needed to hold Bastogne. So on the 22nd, a German commander sent a message to the Americans. He approached the American lines under a white flag and he said the only way for the U.S. forces to survive was to surrender. And the U.S. commander replied, nuts, um, which was interpreted to the Germans as go to hell, essentially. Uh, and so the Germans then decided to attack Bastogne to try to um, crush the Americans. But they made a tactical error. Instead of having one simultaneous attack, the Germans tried assaulting several individual locations which ended up being repulsed. And then finally on December 26, George Patton, who had been sent by Eisenhower to relieve Bastogne, ended up reaching Bastogne, breaking the encirclement, and really relieving the 101st Airborne. As I mentioned earlier, by the end of December, the skies cleared, and this allowed the Allies to attack the Germans from the air, but also to drop supplies and reinforce Bastogne. And then again, eventually the Germans slowed, they outran the supply lines, they had a lack of supplies, they, again, they ran out of fuel, everything came to a halt. And so um, the Allies then started a counter-offensive, and by six weeks they regained all the ground they lost. And so this grand offensive, a kind of a last-ditch effort by Hitler failed. It failed, obviously because of the great American resistance which slowed the offensive down. Um, uh, the Germans' lack of supplies hurt them. And also the weather, while it started off bad, ended up clearing to give help the Allies um, kind of finish the Germans off. So overall in this battle, um, the Americans, it was a costly battle. They had 90,000 casualties with 19,000 killed. Germans lost 82,000 of their own, and 12,500 were killed. So it was an American victory, an Allied victory, because they were able to push the Germans back um, 
the Germans were able to kind of set back the invasion of Germany by a few weeks. But the German forces were essentially destroyed at, in the Battle of the Bulge. And it, it really only delayed their inevitable surrender. And this was one of the biggest battles on the Western Front. The Battle of the Bulge is actually the second deadliest battle in U.S. history. Um, just behind uh, the Meuse Argonne offensive in World War One. Now, uh, the Battle of the Bulge um, actually uh, made the Russian advance quicker from the east because the Germans pulled some troops from the east to, for this Battle of the Bulge. And so the Russians were able to advance quicker. Churchill even asked Stalin to start his offensive a week earlier than he planned on, which he did. So, um, so it really is just a, an all-out disaster for the Germans. A couple of interesting things about the Battle of the Bulge is number one, um, because of shortages in troops, Eisenhower actually integrated the army for the first time. I talked about you know the black troops earlier, but they were integrated here for this battle partially. Maybe my favorite anecdote was that um, after the Battle of the Bulge and as the Allies moved into Germany and crossed the, the Rhine, Patton, as he's leading his army across the, the, the Rhine, ended up stopping midway and uh, urinating into the river as he crossed, which I think is a pretty B.A. thing to do. Um, and why not after you're invading a country? So anyways, that is the Battle of the Bulge. Um, really one of the last really huge important battles in the European theater. And again, it was a, a gutsy move by Germany, Germany to try to um, kind of uh, not crush the Allies, but try to give them a glimmer of hope. But it was repulsed and pretty much was the final straw, the final nail that led to their destruction in World War II. So with the European theater firmly in Allies' hands, that takes us to our, the Pacific theater, and which, as we've talked about in the last couple of episodes, the U.S. has steadily been moving towards the Japanese homelands and for the eventual invasion of the homelands. And um, uh, yeah, and so the Japanese have really been suffering a string of defeats here. And as they settle into 1945 in February, um, the next target um, for the Allies is the island of Iwo Jima. Now, Iwo Jima is a volcanic island about 1,200 miles south of Tokyo. And Mount Suribachi is on the island, which is on the southwest part of the island. Um, Iwo Jima was considered strategically important by the U.S. because it had two airstrips that could be used to intercept long-range American bombers. So the Allies, or the U.S., had the capabilities of flying bombing missions to the, the Japanese homelands. And they were concerned about uh, airplanes on other islands that the Japanese still controlled coming up and knocking and shooting those down. So the uh, U.S. wanted to take uh, Iwo Jima to prevent that. And the U.S. thought they could take the island in about a week. Now, we you know, talked about the Battle of Peleliu last episode and how the Japanese um, had changed tactics and started to fight a war of attrition. Now, despite the fact that Peleliu was an extremely tough island to take, um, the U.S. still did not understand that the Japanese had changed tactics. The Japanese knew that they could not stop an invasion of Iwo Jima, and so they planned intricate defensive tunnels, again, to make it a war of attrition. They would allow the Allies to land unopposed and then inflict as many casualties as possible. And the hope was that they could make the U.S. realize um, how much of a fight it would be to eventually take the Japanese mainland and that they could then negotiate a surrender that wasn't unconditional. So in these two battles that we're talking about today, we talked about the Battle of the Bulge and Iwo Jima. I mean, both have very similar uh, goals from, in this case, Germany and Japan. And it was to try to convince the Allies that there could be different terms besides unconditional surrender. Now, the, 
Now, the Japanese were led by Lieutenant General Tadamichi Kiribayashi, and he had actually prepared for almost a year for this battle. And so he made main defensive zones, uh, oh, excuse me, he had two main defensive zones, couldn't read my notes there, instead of just one large elaborate one, because he um, was not able to complete a tunnel before the U.S. forces arrived. The main one was in the north, while the smaller one was in the south. But he did have a network of bunkers and pillboxes. And what, this worked to their advantage because they were able to, through the tunnels, reoccupy a pillbox after it had it been cleared out. And so, you know, U.S. strategy in a lot of the battles in World War II was they would go out, clear out a pillbox, move on to the next one. Well, now you could throw a grenade in a pillbox, and it could maybe either... Um, you know, kill the Japanese soldiers there, or they could just retreat. But no matter what happens, whether they killed the soldiers in there or the soldiers retreated, the the the, the Japanese could just use a different a, a different tunnel to then reoccupy that pillbox. Japanese have plenty of food to in field to hold out. In some areas, they had three months of food. Um, and again, there's 11 miles of tunnels on Iwo Jima, some 75 to 90 feet deep. And they had machine guns, artillery, tanks, anti-tank guns, mines, mortars, snipers. Every part of the island was subject to fire, and there was even some kamikazes available. Um, now Iwo Jima had the longest and most intense pre-bombardment of the Pacific Theater, 75 straight days. But because of the Japanese defenses were underground, it was pretty much ineffective. And eventually, 110,000 U.S. soldiers, many veterans of Saipan, Tinian, and Peleliu, would land on the island and would go up against 21,000 Japanese defenders. So the U.S. plan was for the two Marine Divisions, the 4th and 5th Marine Divisions, to land on the beaches. Part of the 5th would go south and capture Mount Siribachi, while the rest would go north and take the airfields, then there was a third division, called the third division, third marine division, that would stay in reserve. So the Americans landed on February 19th. They were aided by um, some Navajo Indians, called again wind talkers. And uh, I think a lot of people know this is pretty famous, but the U.S. military used the Navajo language um, to uh, as kind of code talking to. Uh, encode their messages and it was highly successful because um, it's pretty much a code you can't crack unless uh, you were a Navajo Indian and they were considered indispensable to, indispensable to the success of this mission. Now the beaches were unbeknownst to the Marines were volcanic ash and this caused problems trying to advance and to dig foxholes. The Marines were allowed one hour to kind of build up uh, on the beach, excuse me, soldiers and supplies before the Japanese started firing and they did that intentionally to create a log jam on the beach. Uh, some of their tunnels had steel doors they could open, fire them close. Um, the, the, and the beach really essentially just became a killing zone and bloody mess. Now the advancement on the beach was rough and slow but eventually two roads were able to be built for the Marines and equipment was moved and by midday, there were some Marines made it to the first airstrip. Um, the 28th Regiment and the 5th Marines were able to complete their objective of isolating the Japanese forces surrounding Mount Siribachi. So they weren't able to take the mountain, but they were able to cut off those forces from the rest of the island. Um, the other half um, of the army were not as successful. They reached a spot called the Quarry, and they were hit hard by the Japanese. Um, the 25th Marines had an 83% casualty rate. Um, just 150 were still fighting out of the 900. So really high casualties. Um, but despite that, by the end of the evening, 30,000 Marines made the landing. Now pretty much over the next week, the Marines were able to take um, the, one of the airfields and reach the other. Um, but again, it was inevitable that the U.S. was going to defeat the Japanese. As I said, the Japanese knew that. It was just about how long it was going to take. Um, 
Japanese would jump out of tunnels and try to ambush the Marines, or they'd try to yell in English and, and, and try to convince them they were a wounded Marine to lure people out into outside of their defenses and, and kill them. Pretty much took flamethrowers and grenades to get the Japanese out of tunnels. And most Japanese soldiers fought to the death. Um, and, you know, just, uh, just relentless and making the Marines waste, not waste, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that, but use as many men as possible to, um, take out the Japanese. Now, the Marines actually expected bonsai attacks, but they were actually forbidden by Lieutenant General Kiribachi because he considered them a, a waste. Now, Iwo Jima is famous for the raising of the flag on Mount Siribachi. And so I kind of want to take some time to talk about that. So on February 23rd, the Marines that had isolated Mount Siribachi were able to finally take that mountain. And when they got to the top, a group of Marines raised a flag on top of the mountain, which is one of the iconic images of U.S. military history. And I'm sure you've all seen it. It's a photo or there's even a, a video recording of the Marines. You know, um, what are there six of them? Let me double so check my math here. Yep, six of them who have a flag almost parallel to the ground and they stick the end into the ground and they raise it up together. It's a famous statue. Um, uh, of the Marine Corps. However, this flag raising has an enduring controversy. First thing is that there are actually two flag raisings that um, for this picture. The first one was at 10:30. Now, when the first flag was raised on Mount Siribachi, it was a huge emotional moment for the soldiers because it it gave them a huge boost that they were going to win this battle of Iwo Jima. Now, the Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, was actually at Iwo Jima, and he saw the flag raising in the jubilant atmosphere, and he asked for the flag as a souvenir. <laughs> and he wanted the flag and asked for it to be brought to him and then be replaced by another flag. Just kind of the, the balls and gutsiness um, to ask for a flag after a, a group fought so hard to, to uh, take, a, take a mountain. Anyway, so they got the flag for him, and they brought up another flag and it, to the top of the mountain. And that second flag was raised about two hours after the first one. Now, the picture that's seen in history books and media um, was actually the second flag raising. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you know, pause this podcast, go to YouTube, or go to the internet, and Google Iwo Jima flag raising, and you know what I'm talking about. Now, this photo was widely disseminated and actually won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was used, because of how famous it became, it was used in war bond drives with the surviving soldiers. So FDR, when he saw this picture, he ordered those that the identities discovered and the soldiers sent to Washington. Now, the problem was the photographer, Joe Rosenthal, did not take down the names of the soldiers. So it, was, it was, uh, took a lot um, to figure out who these soldiers were. Now, the original um, identities were named as um, uh, Rene, let's see, um, uh, Gagnon, uh, Henry Hansen, Franken, Franklin Susley, John Bradley, and Michael Strank. Now, Rene um, was like the original one that was identified, and he helped identify the rest. Now, one person he did not name was Ira Hayes, who told him that he would actually hurt him if he was named. But finally, Rene gave up, gave um, Hayes up, and because he was forced to name um, the last identity. So, but of those six, there are actually only three survivors. You had Ira Hayes, you had John Bradley, and Rene Gagnon. Those were the th the other three were actually killed later on in Iwo Jima. Uh, Strank and Hansen on March 1st and Susan on March 21st. So the, the three remaining soldiers actually um, went on a war bond drive 
and it helped raise $26 billion, billion with a B, for the war. Twice as much as they, the government wanted. Now, fairly quickly, Hansen's identity was called into question, and it was actually determined later on that Harlan Block was that soldier, which was eventually later confirmed. Now, I already mentioned Hansen was killed on March 1st, and actually so was Block was killed on March 1st. So um, they did determine that Hansen helped raise the first flag. So about two years later, in January 1947, it was officially announced that Harlan Block was actually one of the flag raisers. But what's interesting is that up in, um, the, other than that one identity misstep, the other five were thought to be um, the identities of the flag racers. It's only recently come out that two of them, that two two of the guys that we thought were um, flag raisers, were actually not. So in 2016, it was determined after further research that John Bradley, who died in 1994, was not in the photo, but Harold Schultz, who died in 1995, was. And what was interesting about that is that Bradley's son wrote a book called Flag of Our Fathers which was made into a movie by Clint Eastwood that kind of chronicles Iwo Jima. Um, and, so, and I've actually seen that movie. Um, but so uh, Bradley was, you know, again, his son wrote the book, but it turns out Bradley wasn't even one of the flag raisers. Now, Bradley's story had actually changed all over the years. You know, he when he interviewed about it, he wouldn't really talk about it. So that was the second identity that was, Changed, and then in 2019, just a couple years ago, it was determined that you know Renee, um, you know the original Marine who was identified as one of the flag raisers and helped pick the identities of the other five, was actually not in the photo either. And his identity was um, someone by the name of Harold Keller, who died in 1979. So, this iconic image of six Marines raising the flag. Half of them were actually misidentified. Now, how could you possibly misidentify three people, especially when two of them were still living and lived, uh, lived until either the 90s or the 2000s? Well, the reason for that is all three of the soldiers that were ended up being misidentified, that were identified as the raisers, flag raisers, and ended up not becoming flag raisers, um, were on Mount Suribachi that day. A couple of them raised the first flag or lowered the first flag um, or helped in some way, shape, or form with the flag raising. So it is possible that those soldiers really thought they were in that photograph and raised the flag. It's also possible to took advantage of the situation, but it's tough to really know for certain. And quite frankly, you can't blame those soldiers if they maybe took it, in my opinion. You can maybe not blame them. You can at least understand because... I'm sure they went through um, some tremendously difficult situations in battle. You can kind of understand if they were confused or um, hopefully accidentally misconstrued or misidentified themselves as a flag raiser. Anyways, though, Mount Suribachi, though, was taken. And so uh, that was a huge moment in the Battle of Iwo Jima. And then the fighting shifted to northern Iwo Jima, which took a couple more weeks. Um, now, the terrain favored defensive positions, so the Japanese were able to continue to inflict heavy casualties. And finally, a breakthrough occurred when the, Jap when the American commanders realized that the Japanese understood U.S. tactics. And they understood that the U.S. would typically lay down a heavy bombardment for an, before an infantry attack. So the Japanese soldiers would hide during the bombardment and then lay he heavy fire when the U.S. would attack. And so one general ordered a night attack without a bombardment, and it was subsequently successful. On March 8th, there was a final bonsai attack, um, and they finally did a bonsai attack because it was felt that all hope was lost to the Japanese. 800 soldiers inflicted 340 casualties um, on the Marines. And they actually were able to split the defenses. Um, no, I read my I read my notes wrong. I apologize. So, but they were able to inflict 340 casualties. 
but the Marines were eventually able to reach the northern end of the island, splitting up the Japanese defenses. I apologize for that. On March 25th, the last, really last ditch attack happened when 300 Japanese soldiers went through the tunnels to attack Airfield 2, led by Lieutenant General Kiribachi, and there was 90-minute hand-to-hand fighting before they were defeated. Now, the island was considered secure on March 26th, about a six-week battle, although the last holdout didn't surrender until 1949, four years after the war was over. Um, the U.S. suffered 28,000 casualties, which was a third of all the casualties suffered by the Marines in the entire war, almost 7,000 dead. Uh, the Japanese pretty much lost their entire 21,000 garrison. This was actually the only U.S. Marine battle where the U.S. casualties actually superseded the Japanese casualties. That just told you how fierce the fighting was. There's 27 medals of honors, 14 um, of those were awarded to soldiers who had died, which is the most ever in a battle in World War II. So it was a um, victory for the U.S., uh, but the strategic significance of Iwo Jima has been called into question since the battle. Um, you know, one thing that did help after Iwo Jima is that there's a lot of lessons that were learned and it helped the U.S. plan for future invasions. When they would invade Okinawa, which we'll talk about next episode, and then the actual planned attack on the Japanese home islands, they actually then adjusted their tactics. Now Iwo Jima was taken because it provided landing and refueling for fighter escorts. Um, or, you know, it could be used for that for the U.S., um, jets and fighter escorts. However, there were only 10 missions flown from Iwo Jima. So really ended up not being that big of a deal. Um, the U.S. did capture another a radar station at Iwo Jima, but that didn't affect the other warning systems. Um, and on top of that, no mission, uh, bombing missions actually occurred um, from Iwo Jima over the Japanese mainland. So really in short, the high cost of Iwo Jima really made the battle unnecessary because they never actually used it in the hopes or for the reasons why they considered it was important to take the island. And so it was a costly American victory and there's really a question of whether or not it was really necessary to, uh, to take Iwo Jima. But, um, just like the Germans are reeling in Europe, after Iwo Jima, the Japanese are reeling in the Pacific. And so, um, those two battles were kind of the main things that were talked about in that episode of Ken Burns' War. And I didn't just want to end, though, this episode just talking about the two battles. Kind of one more thing I want to talk about, and this wasn't talked about in, uh, in the episode, but um, I thought I'd like to end on a more lighthearted note after talking about two pretty fierce battles. And that is the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Uh, now this was famously fictionalized in a league of their own, but World War II obviously had an effect on sports. And we talked about that, I think, in my first episode, but I didn't really get a chance to talk about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which started in 1943. Now, when World War II started, there was a concern that baseball would have to suspend operations, even though FDR gave the green light to keep Major League Baseball going. Um, however, the stars were not exempt from the draft, and naturally the quality of play dropped. You, you, know, you had guys like um, Bob Feller, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio go into the service. Um, so in order to keep baseball in the public eye, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was founded. The founder was Philip Wrigley, the owner of my Chicago Cubs. So they had tryouts at Wrigley Field, and about 200 players showed up. And they were scouted from amateur softball games, and eventually 60 were picked for rosters. Now, it was segregated, so it was just white, soft, or white um, girls professional baseball players. What well, they don't really talk about, though, if you've seen a movie, a League of Their Own, it's a, like I said, it's a fictionalized version of the, the league. But um, 
they don't really, uh, or there's a lot of things they don't talk about in that movie. Um, in, in the league, the ball was 12 inches at the, just like a softball when they started. Uh, eventually, or baseball is nine inches, so it's a, still a lot bigger ball. The pitcher's mound was just 40 feet away. And the, the pitchers actually started off throwing underhand windmill, just like softball. And the distance between bases was 65 feet. So it was really still more softball than baseball when they started. But, you know, over the course um, of the league, over the 12, 13 years they played, the rules conformed more to baseball. Overhand pitching, ball is baseball's regulation size, mound was 60 feet, and the base paths were 85 feet. Players got paid about 45 to $85 a week. And then by the end of the of the league in 1955, they got paid $125 a week. And again, as famously depicted in the movie, A League of Their Own, players had to be feminine. They had to play in skirts. They attended charm school. Um, there was a dress code. They couldn't have short hair, could not drink or smoke in public, couldn't wear pants, had to wear lipsticks at all times. There's $5 for the first offense, $10 for the second, and then the third time they were suspended. And, he's, and the teams had chaperones. Um, most successful team was the Rockford Peaches, which um, was uh, one of the teams depicted in the movie. Um, some of the, the best players. Um, the all-time wins leader is Helen Nickel at 100, 163 wins and 1,076Ks. Um, Eleanor, Eleanor Callow was the home run leader with 55 home runs. Um, something I didn't know about though was there's actually a rival professional girls baseball league called the National Girls Baseball League. And that league started a year after the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. So it was founded in 1944 by Chicago Cardinals owner Charles Bidwell. The Chicago Cardinals were a football team. Um, the second team besides the Bears in Chicago, they moved to St. Louis, and then they are now the Arizona Cardinals. Now, this league was formed in a response to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League as scouts raided the Chicago Metro Softball League. So they, in turn, turned the Metro League into another pro baseball league. Uh, teams are all based in Chicago, and they actually even outdrew the White Sox for a couple years. They kept the underhand pitch and used a 12-inch ball, and they're integrated and offered higher salaries. And these two leagues kind of fought for a couple of years and kind of raided rosters before they came to an agreement and honored each other's contracts. So I, you know, I just kind of wanted to, to talk about that, um, partly because I just didn't want to talk about two battles and be done with that. But again, just you know, the World War II affected every everyday life and even sports and even during world war ii people were still trying uh, in these sports these entertainment industries to keep their product going and one way they used it was they had you know girls professional baseball leagues but the legacy of these leagues is that it showed that hey women can not only play sports but they can attract a following tract attendance and could sustain themselves for um in this case over a decade and it was really a big movement and moment for young girls, or not young girls, but for girls athletics. And it certainly would have eventually happened at some point, but World War II uh, actually kind of accelerated that, gave women the opportunity, not just in the workplace, but in sports as well, to uh, show that they deserve the same amount of rights as, as men do. All right, so I'm pretty much at the end of my episode here. Um, we talked about the Battle of, Okinawa, or Battle of Iwo Jima, Battle of the Bulge, two highly important battles that helped accelerate the end of the war. Uh, so yeah, I really hope you enjoyed the episode, whether this was the first time or not. Um, I really encourage you, if you haven't listened to my other episodes, feel free to go back and, and listen to my other topics. Um, I really can help you learn something. That is the whole point of Doc Tell Me More. Again, I really encourage you to go follow me on uh, Mastodon. At, at Doc Tell Me More, and feel free to to follow me. You know, give me a like and, and, and engage in you know in any um, any commentary. I, I post a lot of things about 
related to the different podcast topics. So that'll do it for episode 38 of Doc Tell Me More. Uh, we will have uh, one more episode of Ken Burns' The War, and then we will figure out what the next topic will be. So again, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you later.